Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Gary, we've got a great show for our listeners today. I know that uh, we've got uh, Mitch Zukoff, and we're going to talk about his book on 9-11. But before we do that, we'd love to... uh, Yeah, it is a great book, and and, and it has so much heart, and the storytelling is is, is compelling. Um, Truly a page-turner, particularly for something that's in the nonfiction uh, arena. Uh, that said, there's been a number of things in the news that I want to talk to you about. Uh, one of the things that, that caught my eye uh, was the director of the MIT Media Lab, uh, Joey Ito, uh, did something unusual. He publicly acknowledged that the MIT Media Lab had this relationship with the multimillionaire financier and convicted sex offender, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who recently killed himself in prison. Now, while MIT nor Joy uh, offered any specifics, it appears that Epstein gave a sizable donation or donations to the media lab. Now, we do not know how much. We do not know if this was precipitated by a media inquiry, uh, but I think it raises a, a, a lot of questions. Uh, but one of the things that is interesting to me is that sense of, you know, when you have this belief that there's external information out there about your organization, and in this case, it was Epstein's contributions to the MIT Media Lab. Um, When's the right time from your perspective to actually maybe spill the beans before uh, an investigative journalist does? Yeah. So, Mike, I may have a different point of view than you on this, and I think it's colored by my time I spent as a journalist. Uh, I always felt like I would not, if it was a, in this case, and we don't know, but in this case, if they felt like somebody was about to write something and they wanted to get out ahead of it, right. I, I sometimes hesitated in breaking the exclusive. <laughs> for, uh, now, that was probably completely wrong and maybe completely wrong today. I think back, Mike, to the, we've talked about it before, the GE taxes story back yeah. in 2011 that hurt, hurt the company so badly from a reputation standpoint. And certainly we used a story or stories were coming and we could have gotten out in front of it if we had wanted to. And I'd have to say, so this is, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Um, You know, and I think think sometimes you don't, sometimes you just don't know what the story will say. And is there a self-inflicted, self-inflicted wound that you commit by getting out front? Yeah, and I think a lot depends on the facts that you're dealing with at the time. Yeah, but I am, I tend to favor uh, spilling the beans myself uh, just because you have a better chance of uh, developing the narrative from your point of view. 
yeah. it's kind of once all the beans are spilled, and then you have follow-on journalists who are doing their stories, pretty soon you've got uh, a spider of activity that's kind of hard to rein in to say, okay, this is company X's or this is organization-wise story on this in terms of what took place. I think once something, you know, sort of gets out there, the other thing that I think is, is, is important for organizations to do, and I know you did this at GE and I've done it at other places that I've worked from State Farm to, to Cargill to ConAgra, is certainly monitoring what's being said about the company yeah. at a given point in time. And then if there's some controversy that seems to be gaining legs, jumping that with your own uh, story and providing, if you have the ability, uh, some third-party uh, verification of your point of view can be very, yeah. very effective and can put a damper on the rumor. Yeah, and look, certainly self-disclosure is always the right approach. In other words, if, if the lawyers came to me and said, Gary, we got this issue in Africa with a, 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 you know, a legal issue or that kind of thing, you know, disclosing that as, a, as an organization to the regulators and getting out in front of that um, is always the right is always the right uh, approach. I just you know when when on the tax story, for example, we went around and around with the New York Times on that story for months mm -hmm. and months. And there's so there was ample opportunity for me to say, hey, there's a story coming about our taxes, uh, how much VE pays, et cetera, and. Um, I, I just at the time I was the the, the fear of uh, adding fuel to the fire rather than dousing it with water was probably the hardest one of the hardest decisions I had to make. Yeah, well, and it's also interesting the specifics of, of the uh, media lab story at MIT. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 you know, so 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 they first of all. Uh, Joey Ito comes out. He says, I take full responsibility for my error in judgment. And right. he says, I'm deeply sorry to the survivors. But he's trying to show some empathy for those who were impacted by Mr. Epstein himself. And then he, he acknowledges that, you know, that they sought some fundraising from him. Again, they don't mention the amount. But then he also offers an apology. Now, what's interesting to me about this is under what circumstances does an organization apologize? Now, I know what I think MIT and particularly the Media Lab and its director are, are trying to avoid here. Uh, you know, they don't want to have uh, the Epstein story uh, somehow put a cloud over MIT. But they're the right. ones that seemingly are coming out with the story, and they're apologizing. Should there be yeah. an apology? In my, in my opinion, no. And yeah. here's, here's why. For me, um, you know, Mr. Ito um, said in his statement he didn't see any of this um, 
kind of uh, horrific behavior, uh, et cetera. And I think a disclosure of the donation is enough. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, but an apology, here's what I say to my crisis class, and it comes straight from the textbook that we use, is that when you apologize when there, it's clearly your fault, right? right. When you clearly have, uh, uh, through misjudgment or uh, in other ways, um, done something you shouldn't have, and it's had a negative effect on some people. So in my view, Mike, I say no, but I'd love to hear what you, what you think. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in most cases, if you apologize, you should be apologizing for something. And Correct. this sort of blanket apology is what I think I have a problem with. Now, if there's something right. specific to be apologetic about, then out with it. both from 
Trump and from Israel. Marco Rubio, Republican from the state of Florida, uh, very pro-Israel himself, says both yep. Trump and Israel are making a mistake. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, says it's kind of interesting that in Netanyahu's statement, you know, he talks about you know uh, Israel being a vibrant and free democracy, and she said, yeah. "Well, if they're really serious about being a tolerant democracy. Why wouldn't you let these two members of Congress visit, even though they have differing political views?" So, is it about statecraft? Is this about domestic U.S. politics or Israeli politics? You know, I, I look. I, I I think the real weakness here was shown by Trump and Netanyahu. And here's, and I think it has, I think it has uh, sort of a, a translation to um, corporations and other big organizations about your relationships in the world, which is, uh, you know, it's easy to say, um, you know, these people disagree with us, and so I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to listen mm-hmm. to what they have to say. Yeah. And I, I have to say that, you know, when I joined GE, uh, that was the case with some environmentalists, you know, basically mm-hmm. talk to the hand. We don't we don't want mm-hmm. to hear from you. And, and in every case, Mike, where I said, look, these people are going to continue to criticize us until we can come to some kind of reasonable understanding of how they feel and how we feel. In every case where I went and talked to people who had previously been banned, um, yep. we came to a, a common understanding. Yeah, and, and, I, and I found it, the same thing. Yeah, in, in my it, career, you know, if, if, if you don't take time to understand your critics, if you don't take time to truly listen to what people are saying about your organization, and take the time to have a real conversation. All you're going to do is you're going to you're going to tend to spin your spin your wheels in the same mud. And gotcha. uh, so, this is about politics, right? So it's about both U.S. Mm-hmm. and America, you know, and they're both appealing it, it, to their their base. But you know, corporations these days, companies don't really have that luxury. It's it, right. where today a small group of people can make big problems, um, right? And so you you can't ignore increasingly to me, uh, you can't ignore uh, some of this uh, some of this criticism. And in fact, uh, in several cases where I talk to people, and I know you have as well, knowing the work you did, particularly at Cargill, it made us better when we talked to these people, and we were able to improve things. Uh, operations within the company or policies, et cetera. Absolute conversation. So, because what you do, you do is you, you listen to what they see as a problem. Maybe some of what they're articulating isn't accurate. You show some authentic, exactly. authenticity and, 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 and transparency and actually let them view what's actually taking place. You, you take some of those problems, you know, off, off the counter. And, and then you deal with real things, and sometimes they do have insights that then can be translated into real work that you can do that can ultimately, uh, you know, win you uh, some accommodation as well as win you some understanding from 
these various publics and get you to a position where you're not only doing what you intend to do, but you're doing the right thing in the right way and getting credit for it in the process. The other aspect of the situation between Trump and Netanyahu, to me too, is a little bit of a warning to U.S. companies operating abroad or to other organizations that are operating in countries that aren't their homes. And that is that, you know, oftentimes the standards that we think are, are, you know, a fait accompli at home, like the First Amendment and freedom of speech that we all enjoy and love in the United States, isn't necessarily accorded us when we operate in other places. So I think there's another little lesson here in that, you know, we've got to be clear about where and how we operate and realize that what might be social or political norms in one place may not be social and political norms elsewhere. Elsewhere. Look, and as an American, my last point is, I, I just think we lose when we don't stand up for freedom of speech, and um, here, here. Our, you know our morals. Yeah, our moral standing gets diminished, and uh, our our ability to be persuasive and and uh, and and not only through living our ideas but talking about them and, and embracing diversity of thought, I, I think, is a is a step backwards. Yeah. So, so Gary, one other item I, I, I want to bring up, and I know it, it, there's some sensitivity. It's with your former employer. Uh, but before we get on to um, our interview oh with, with Mitch, you know, it, first of all, it's, I've been with companies that have taken hits in the marketplace. They've usually been sustained mm-hmm. over a period of time. Uh, but we saw GE take a one-day hit in the stock market where – value went down by 11.3%. That did kind of yeah. rebound. Kind of ended up being a modest decline of, I think, a little under 3% for the week. Uh, but uh, this was all precipitated by a 175-page report released on August 16th uh, by, uh, and I don't know that I'll pronounce his name right, but Harry uh, Markopoulos, uh, who's yes, a forensic right. accountant. He's accusing GE of $38 billion in accounting fraud, uh, essentially squandering money needed for reserves. Um, and it, it, it strikes me, one, that the power of one individual, uh, Markopoulos in this case, can have such a huge impact on the market, yes. given he is given past credit, uh, or at least exposing the Ponzi scheme that was Enron. But as a chief communications officer, you're, if, when you're sitting inside of a company and somebody piles on these kinds of criticisms and these kind of charges, um, and particularly today when you've got the market quickly reacting, you've got lots of people latching on, um, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your take on timing and what would be the natural steps that a company like GE should be taking. Yeah, it, this is, and I, I begin by saying this great case study, communication case study, by saying I have Absolutely. nothing but respect for the communications team. 
at GE. But I, I think a little bit of a TikTok is helpful here, and, and so our listeners can grasp what the GE communications team is probably facing, which is this guy writes this report. He's got some credibility from the Madoff stuff. Uh, he gives an advanced copy, or at least lets the Wall Street Journal see it and report which on GE it in advance, have, right? which GE did not have. So the journal is calling GE to say, here's what Markopoulos is going to say, and um, do you have any response to that? So doesn't have the report. They have it translated through a Wall Street Journal beat reporter. Yeah. So, you know, you put out, they prepare, they put out their statements in the morning as the, as the day wore on and and this, you know, undercutting of the value of the company, you know, some incredible number, 40, you know, $40 billion or some such thing. Yeah. I'm probably getting that wrong, but you know, they became a little bit more aggressive and they put out a statement from the CEO calling it market manipulation. And then they had their head of their audit committee go on CNBC and put out a, 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 a denial. And then they did some insider buying with the CEO, Larry Culp, buying a couple million dollars or something like to that amount of stock to show confidence in the company. To, so uh, to me, uh, you know, the reporting that's followed all of this has continued to show the Markopoulos accusation with his credibility Thank from the Madoff. And his hyperbolic, clearly, uh, statement that it, this is worse than WorldCom and Enron put together. Now, there have been since then, like Goldman Sachs and, and some sell side analysts and others put out reports saying there are a bunch of inaccuracies in what my couple has done. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, the headlines continue in the follow on reporting. Yeah. GE accused yeah. of fraud. So it, it's unfair. Well, and I think there's a lesson uh, in it's here. Unfair to- Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, no, I was just saying. I think there's a lesson in here from a market, from a uh, uh, from a media relations point of view. You, you know, if, if someone calls you, if a reporter calls you, and they say that they've got a report or they've got uh, somebody who uh, says there's this particular problem, um, the first thing that one should do is, can I see it? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I actually see the report so that I know what right. I'm reacting to because it's hard exactly. for me to react to something I've never seen. Um, right. And, 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 and most times reporters, uh, particularly if that document is going to be made public in some fashion, uh, will, will, will let you see or at least glean, give you a glean at what passages relate to the questions that they're asking you about. Right, um, right. So, so, so I think that's that's number one. Number two is it does seem from afar that there was well, there were clearly some good steps taken, and and, and I, I I look back at, at other crises cases that we've seen. It's like people get better on the second or third day, but you'd like for those yeah. activities to have taken place, you know, within the first few hours. And and, and so the other challenge is. If you think things are getting to get better by waiting, don't. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's rarely the case. Yeah, that's right. It's completely the case. And look, this is this kind of attack, which I, I really I, I don't use that word lightly here, but this was an attack. Uh, you know, and Markopoulos, not to 
diminish him because I don't know what the answer is uh, on the accounting. Um, you know, he said one of the reasons he took a look at GE was because they moved their headquarters to Boston. That's his hometown. And I don't like to have crooks or something in my hometown. You know, so these kinds of attacks are becoming more common. And also in cases of activist investors, you know, activist right. investors uh, have become very sophisticated at uh, using the media to tell a story right. and to doing what used to be limited to political opposition research. What kind of person is the CEO? Does that person have a domestic violence issue in his, his or her past, for example? So yeah. the game is getting much rougher. It's much more pugilistic. And CCOs just have to understand that, that you have to be willing to fight for your reputation. And part of that fight to me is wrapping the corporate language, wrapping, you know, the things about adhering to the highest standards of integrity. You can say that and all of that kind of thing. I, I get it. But yeah. what is it about not enough, the attack? Right? It's not enough. I, I, you're exactly right, Mike. And what is it about the attack, the attack that's specifically wrong? Um, why is it unfair? And who are the third parties who will back you up on, on something like this? You are at yeah. a, and GE here was at a significant disadvantage because they hadn't seen a report um, and they rallied. Uh, but man, this is in many ways what the CCO's job is about these days in my view. Yeah, it's kind of parsing through the, the why and the what. And there's a, a, yep. a great, there's a great tendency of senior management in general to want to say why they wouldn't have done something, you know, or why right. they did something, as opposed to getting to the what and then getting to the why as to why those certain steps were taken. Now, I think there's also a journalism story in here in yeah. the sense of, Okay, so now this guy dumps a 175-page report, and the guy does have a past that, you know, most people would say, oh, this guy, you know, is really smart, and, you know, he looked into Madoff, he looked into Enron, you know, yada, yada, yada. And when you start to look at what the actual claims are that are being made by him, they're very complicated and somewhat yeah. convoluted. And, and, and as somebody sitting here with an accounting degree, you know, he's sitting there and he's looking That's right. at I forgot about you know, that. how much money they should set aside for reserves. And he's articulating that some long-term care obligations that they made. Uh, and then there's also new accounting standards that are going in place. So they're going to have to, you know, have a non-cash write-down. All of these things are very complicated. And he's also then saying, you know, they overstated their investment in Baker News. So like three different piece parts, all of which are very difficult to think of as somehow being part and parcel of the same storyline. Yeah, and Mike, as we've said, it's a world without nuance, right? And right. any response to something that complex, it is hard. For, it is just so hard to tell those stories these days. Yeah. And, but it's also uh, why and, journalists and, need to be careful about the context of what they're dealing with. And that's, well, 
standpoint, what we're fighting for every day is to have exactly context acceptance. You know, and here's the thing that we had Matt Murray, the editor of the journal on the cross and Matt is a great journalist and, and, a, and a good friend. I would be critical of the journal in this. And they were given the exclusive in this case. Uh, honestly, I thought they sort of lit the fuse and walked away. Mm-hmm. Um, of this story, I, I haven't seen much follow-on on, on some of the sk- people who have been skeptical of the Markopoulos report. Maybe I missed it. I could be entirely wrong. But you also know that Markopoulos himself was working with an unnamed hedge fund. He refused to identify the hedge fund to the journal. And he was going to get – the hedge fund was betting against GE. They were short-selling GE. So uh, Markopoulos wow. had – personal motivation, which the journal said, to drive down the GE stock. Uh, Now, the journal disclosed that, you know, in the third or fourth paragraph, but again, it's the general impression that this creates about a company and a company's reputation where that nuance of the conflict gets lost. Because there's a lot of people that wish the story that didn't mention that. Yeah, and I... As, and I'm sure the, the GE communications team is so good. I'm sure they they tried. Uh, yeah. You know, and if I were the journal editor as a former journalist, I would not have published the story without Mark. I would have denied that term exclusive. He would have had to tell me one of the conditions who the hedge fund was. And I yeah. think that was a that was something that uh, because then your readers engage just how much um, your client, your partner in this, Mark Harpless's partner, is benefiting. How much money are they taking out of GE shareholders' pockets and putting it in their own? That is a part of yeah. the story, in my view. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely. I'm going to cry now, Mike. I'm, I'm so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't cry. We've got, a, we've got a great guest coming up. And uh, stay tuned. Okay. Hey, Mike. This is Gary Sheffer, and our guest today uh, on the Crux is one of the distinguished co- colleagues here at Boston University, Mitch Stoff, who is the Summer Redstone Professor of Narrative Studies, which I'd love to talk about in a minute. Uh, many of you will recognize Mitch's work um, as a writer when I, when I uh, mention them. His latest is what I thought was just a real can't-put-down book, All and by the story of 9-11. Uh, the book has become a New York Times bestseller. The Washington Post called it a remarkable and groundbreaking book about 9-11. Uh, and by the way, Mitch's three previous books were also New York Times bestsellers. Number one on the New York Times list, which our listeners will recognize, 13 Hours, The Inside Account, what happened, really happened in Benghazi, which became a very good movie, uh, I thought. It wasn't in time about sort of survival and bravery in World War II. And Lost Shangri-La, which I'm the first to admit, Mitch, that I read several years ago, and never recognized that uh, you're the author. 
until I wrote uh, your introduction. Uh, Mitch is a a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his work uh, as an investigative reporter at the Boston Globe Spotlight team, and he's won many, many awards for his reporting writing. Mitch, welcome to the Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. So we say here at the Crux that, you know, it's at the heart of the story, so you're a perfect guest because you're all about storytelling and narrative, but I want to ask you about that first. How do you go from the Globe Spotlight team to being a professor of narrative studies, and what does, quote-unquote, narrative studies mean in the context of contemporary journalism uh, curriculum? Sure. I, I think the, the short answer is, is misspent youth, but I, I think the, 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 the real answer is I, I loved my work at the Globe and, and what the Globe did for me and, and what I was able to do with the Globe. Um, but I, I realized at a point that I, my real ambition was to do truly long-form writing. And as many series as I had done and, and, and projects and, and magazine stories, the, the book was really uh, the next goal in my professional life. And so um, so I reached a point where I started writing books, and uh, but I missed the newsroom. I missed the atmosphere. You go from a very um, engaged, uh, you know, hurly-burly of, you know, breaking news mm-hmm. to, to a very quiet solo atmosphere of writing books that may take years. And so BU was the perfect blend of both, where I could be with students, I could be teaching, um, and, and have that very, you know, immediate atmosphere and the immediate uh, gratification of working with a student on a story, and then go off on my own and still fulfill my goal um, professionally. And in terms of what narrative studies is, it's really, you know, you know how in academia we love to put fancy phrases on things. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's storytelling. It's nonfiction storytelling. And narrative studies is really um, sort of studying the different techniques, the different philosophies, the different um, strategies, and the overall way of saying, how do I tell this story accurately and engagingly? And, and across mediums, across platforms, um, because, you know, we, we can't be in these silos anymore. Can yeah. you, you know, could, you, could, you, could you give us an example? Uh, I'm just curious what an assignment would look like for a student in, in class. Uh, obviously, they do a lot of working, but do they pick a non-subject and then get a long-form piece about it? Sure, exactly. Um, you know, it, t- it takes all different forms, but uh, one graduate student who uh, I worked with very closely last semester, um, Anna Ghani, last lesson, did an incredible story following uh, sex workers who were fentanyl addicted. And you follow wow. them over a period of time, and this is not this is not an easy story. This is a really intense no. story um, and, and a really difficult story. But she found the humanity in these people who are overlooked and, and often shunned by society. And, you know, that, that took almost a year of work. Um, wow. You know, it, it, that's the, sort of that's the holy grail for our students. Um, but but a, a more sort of short-term narrative might be a day in the life of a campaign worker. You know, that's, a, that's an assignment my students will do uh, this fall. Well, I'll send them up to New Hampshire when we're getting ready for the primary. And give me, what is it like to be, you know, knocking on doors, trying to sell yeah. 
uh, a New Hampshire resident on, on Senator Warren or uh, Bernie Sanders or whomever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. That's great. great. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, I think one of the great narratives is the book that you've written, uh, Paul and Nye's, The Story of 9-11. Um, but before I get into that, I think our listeners, and I know I would, be really interested to know, where were you actually on 9-11? Mm-hmm. Where were you that morning, September 11, 2001? And how did you initially come to learn about the events of the day? And how did it affect you at the time? Um, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so I was actually trying, to, I was home on a book leave, my first book leave from the Globe. Uh, I had been at that point on Spotlight and a roving national correspondent. And I thought I'd write my first book. I'm home, I'm in fuzzy slippers and a robe um, because I don't have to go to work. <laughs> and, uh, and the first plane, Flight 11, hit the North Tower. And uh, my wife, who's a Globe photographer, uh, was watching, and we have a little TV in the kitchen, and she, she called to me. And, uh, you know, it, it's so, I think, reflective, not just of me, but of the moment. I didn't immediately think terrorism. Most of us didn't immediately think terrorism. No. And yeah. so, very pedantic of me, I, I started telling her, you know, hon, back in World War II, this, there, was, there was a bomber that <laughs> in the fog right. hit the Empire State. You know, and by the time I get the words out, the second plane, 175, has hit the South Tower. And of uh, course, we all realize this is not fog or a crappy pilot. Um, and so I ran to the phone, and before I got there, it was ringing. I picked up, and it was the national editor of the Globe telling me that my book leave was over. Uh, and, <laughs> and so I raced in to the paper. I threw on something and, and, and raced wow. in, and that day I actually wrote the lead news story for the Globe about 9-11. Mm. Uh, so I went from zero to 180, and with the help wow. of uh, <laughs> several dozen colleagues, yeah. It was the six lives or something like that, and that led, obviously, to your interest in writing a broader uh, history of the of the day. Yeah. Uh, so what, what happened was, I, I, so I wrote the news story uh, on the 11th, and then again on the 12th, I came back and, and took the control chair. And then I realized I don't want to keep doing that, and I think that there's something else we can do in narrative storytelling if we just... It was crazy ambitious and, and really a little bit nuts. But I said, if, if I can, for this Sunday's paper, write about six lives, uh, the lives of six people, three on the first plane, three in the first tower, and uh, give readers the first sort of human version of what happened that day, because they were being inundated by facts and, and yeah. data. Right. Yeah. So that that well, is... Well, that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I think interesting and different about your book is it's shaped by these narratives. I also thought that what was interesting is the title itself. It's not Rise and Fall, it's Fall and Rise. Uh, so uh, tell our listeners a little bit about, uh, you know, what's, what's the focus of the book and what do you mean when you say that the book was an attempt to delay the descent of 9-11 into the well of history? Sure. So, you, you know, we have this generation that, that's already uh, in, around us. We're teaching them who have no firsthand memories of 9-11. Mm-hmm. 
And so it, it, very soon, events like this become almost like a, a bad history quiz. Like you can answer the, the questions with numbers, 9 and 11, four planes, 3,000 people killed, uh, 19 hijackers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and not feel what we felt and not know what we know having experienced it and having lived through it. And so my goal, my, my, my focus, as, and, and I use that, um, that line about descent into the well of history, because uh, all of us can, can say, well, I can tell you about Pearl Harbor, or I can tell you about the Civil War, but what did it feel like? And so by categorizing and, and, and capturing these human stories and weaving them together in quasi-real time over the course of the narrative, uh, I wanted people to attach themselves to people who woke up that day with the normal hopes and dreams and fears, you know, uh, uh, you know, am I going to uh, get my kids? We all know kind of stuff. Right. Right. And then who had their lives utterly changed. So that was, that was the goal. And Mitch, so I, I want to build on that and, and this sense of feeling. And I'm particularly interested since I just finished the book and it's amazing. Thank you. But you, you, you do have that sense, all of us who are part of the generation that remembers it, just the sense of anguish about that day. And, you know, you built the book on public records and, and that kind of thing, documents. But it really gains its emotional power in the interviews that you did with survivors, family members. Uh, I particularly remember the conversation you had with the chief of the Shanksville uh, volunteer fire department in Pennsylvania, what he saw at the crash of United 93 and how that changed his life. So how difficult was it for you to sort of be the personal chronicler of all of that suffering and anguish, uh, the vast human pain that the, the attacks caused? I, I really appreciate the question. I'm, I'm, I'm always careful to separate what and, and, and distinguish what I've experienced from what the people who, and I don't hold, it doesn't hold a candle to what they went through. Mm -hmm. uh, but right. as journalists and as storytellers, we've become much more attuned to this idea of secondary trauma, that there are generations of war reporters who came home with, with untreated PTSD. And mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not in that category, but uh, certainly uh, having spent uh I mean, several years of research on this book before I started really writing, uh, just interviewing and, and spending time with countless people like Terry Schaefer. You know, you get into, I get into a car with Terry, the, the chief of the volunteer um, fire department in Shanksville, and I had him drive me. The, you know, I wanted to sort of see the path that he took that morning when he was responding sure. to the scene. And so we're in the car and um, we're talking and, and he's breaking down as we get closer and closer, because he's, he's taking me through that moment and that he's back in that, you know, frightened time. And then we get to, we, we go in the back way to the memorial in Shanksville and, and, and down to the field. And, you know, he turns to me and he says, you know, you're seeing grass, I'm, I'm seeing body parts. And you know, he's weeping and I'm weeping. And, uh, and, and there are, there are countless moments like that. And, 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 so you have to respect it. You have to deal with it, and I, and I do. Um, 
what the way one way I deal with it is by seeing it as okay, these people, these remarkable people, have entrusted me with this responsibility, uh, right? And I channel those emotions into the writing. And if 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 like shame on me if these people are putting themselves through it for my sake, and I don't right. do the absolute best job I can. Yeah. Well. Given, given that, does, did that shape, I mean, sort of your, both your timetable and the care you took? I mean, this is coming 18 years after um, you, how many interviews did you do for this book? Hundreds. Hundreds. Yeah. And, 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 and yet, um, sort of the, the, the news uh, person deep side in me also wonders, are there one or two interviews for one story that sort of uh, captures or crystallizes the moment for you. Oh, it's hard. It's, it's you're asking, you know, which of my children I love best. Is that what you're asking? <laughs> 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 on, a, on a different day, I might give a different answer, but um, my mind is going directly right now to Elaine Duke in the North Tower um, on the 88th floor. Uh, she was eager to, she worked for the, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and she was eager for that day because it was going to be her last day, oh, her last days in the towers. Um, she was there to receive the documents to turn the towers over the control from the Port Authority to private landlords. And so this was this, this sort of historic moment she steps out into the hallway because she gets a call from the receptionist that the, the messenger is there. And that's the moment when Flight 11 hits the tower. Wow. And so when this fireball rushes down this elevator shaft and bursts into this hallway where Elaine is standing, uh, it consumes her. And wow. she is arguably um, the, the, the most severely injured person who survived uh, that day. And it took Elaine a year of me reaching out to her to, to trust me, to, to decide I'm going to talk to Mitch yeah. about this. Um, she's never discussed what happened. And so in some ways, um, the process of, of gaining Elaine's trust and um, getting a call one day and saying I'm ready and, and going and, and you know, immediately rushing as soon as she would let me to, uh, to New Jersey where she still lives. Uh, there, there's the process in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Which, if you don't mind, I'm an old, I'm a former journalist at a much more modest level, local newspapering. So this, this is local papers. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan. Sadly, they're disappearing. But um, this point that you just made for our journalism students, maybe who are listening, is is really important. Right, is how do you build trust among people whose story um, uh, you, you want to hear? And so maybe you can walk us through the process in talking to her. How do you establish that trust with a person um, like that? What, what's the key? Is it being empathetic? Is it um, demonstrating your intentions? Or all of that? It's, it, it is all of that. I actually think empathy is the is, is a reporter's and, and maybe a human being's greatest gift. Uh, mm -hmm. Genuine empathy. Um, you know, if, if you're transparent, if you explain exactly what you're doing, and and 
yes, I'm going to make money on this project. Um, I'm going to tell them exactly how I'm going to approach this. I'm going to lay it out for them. I'm going to be happy to connect them with other people I've talked to, whether either in this project or previous work I've done. You know, can I trust Mitch? Um, will he do what he says he's going to do? Um, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to show up when I say I'm going to show up. Um, you know, because people, you know, uh, our audience, not just our audience, but our subjects, I mean, uh, you know, um, they're really, they're, they're very sophisticated in the sense that they can smell a phony from a thousand yards. Very much. And, and as soon as, and as soon as you, you know, it's, it's just like in any other relationship. As soon as you show that, if you are that kind of phony, and I've known oh, journalists, I've known plenty who are, um, <laughs> it, you know, the, the, the relationship is, is, is just curdles from the, the get-go. You can't, you can't uncurdle yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. That, that, that's my approach. Great. Well, we understand congratulations are in order. We heard that uh, ABC has uh, announced some exciting news. With the, okay. the, that now your book is going to be made into a limited television series. and I, So congratulations on that. And, Thank you. Uh, uh, I, I know that the same thing happened with the Benghazi story. But what will your role be in kind of the, the making of that? I, I, I've got to think it's really difficult to take 624 pages mm-hmm. and somehow translate that into a screenplay uh, that's kind of true to your style and, and, and aim as even we've talked here uh, today. Uh, you know, you've just put, again, you've put your finger on it. I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be a daunting challenge. Fortunately, um, I I don't I, I can't name them yet because ABC hasn't yeah. come out with them. They're surrounding me, so I'm an executive producer, and I'm part of this very small writing team um, that's mm-hmm. going to try to to make the translation possible, the adaptation. Fortunately, and probably very wisely on ABC's part, uh, they're surrounding me with three writers who are absolute masters of the form. Uh, one has an Oscar for screenwriting. And the other two are absolute uh, giants in the field. And so my role, to go back to your initial question, might be just to sort of stay out of their way and, and <laughs> just try to, you know, anytime the line, the bright line for me is we are going to have to dramatize. We do not and cannot fictionalize. And so I'm going to be the traffic cop, in my eyes at least, saying, yeah, you can't do that. That's- yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Interesting. That, interesting. that didn't really happen, or this violates something uh, right. about uh, the discussions with this individual. It can't. Exactly. It can't based on a true story. It's got to be the true story. Thank you. What you're saying, I think. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know you mentioned 13 hours, and that was very much my role there. And you know Michael Bay, uh, I have I, I really enjoyed my working with Michael, and uh, we argued a ton. And, you know, and Michael, Michael likes to blow things up, including relationships. And, and, so, uh, and so Michael and I, you know, just we, we, we really and, and we had some real, um, we were always respectful toward each other, but they were they was yelling. Uh, and I, I, I think that's going to be my role again, to be the, the skunk at the garden party occasionally. Uh, but, yeah. Or else, why do it? I mean, you can tell, 
you know, there are great fictional stories out there. There's, you know, be my guest. Do a limited series right. on, you know, I mean, make another Game of Thrones. I'll watch. Go ahead. <laughs> but this isn't that. Right. Right. Well, well, very few dragons in New York that day, you know. <laughs> there's, yeah. You're used to it, Mitch, because there, there's yelling in newsrooms too. So you right. Oh no, I felt it home completely. <laughs> oh no. I... <laughs> well, well, this is uh, uh, look. It's a great book, critically acclaimed. I highly recommend it. And uh, we'll list on our website, Mitch, where folks can uh, can go get it. Um, I, I want to transition a little to some of the uh, some of our listeners, and here's here's the thing that Mike and I have seen in our work um, outside of BU with some of our clients that we do is this idea of, of, of a narrative, which you are an expert at and and, and you teach. Um, just about every multinational corporation, not for profit, government who I've talked to over the past few years wants you to come in and their narrative, to tell their story better, to make it more values-based, make it more plain-spoken. So with a journalist mindset, is that really enough? In other words, I think journalists are skeptical of uh, big, powerful corporations and organizations. It's an era of low trust, lots of risk, transparency. What would you recommend as a journalist to companies who want people to know more about their organization and their people? How do you tell your story? Well, it's a big it's a big question, but I think we start yep. with the same the same rules that I that I was preaching earlier about honesty and accountability and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And, and these are you know these are values that I think great corporations share with journalists mm-hmm. or should. Or should. And I, I, but I think a big part of it is is not waiting for someone to come ask you for your story. Mm-hmm. Is is really being proactive and getting out front and saying we understand we are just as you described. We're in the low trust moment here, um, and where, where skepticism is is an uncharted levels because we we were in a truth challenged moment. At moment, and so, you know, you can't, you, you know, you're already sort of behind the eight ball. People are starting to question your your trust or your accountability. Right, right. never catch up. And so, yeah. getting out in front of that and really talking about how we, whatever it is, how we make our product, how we treat our workers, how we, and and again, as soon as you, you know, step off that that that, that trust path, uh, you know, you're going to be called out. So. You know, don't don't do it. Um, don't do yeah. it. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's we we now have this two way communication because of Twitter, because of social media, that you are now engaged in a conversation, no longer in a soliloquy. And right. you know, <laughs> as soon as you you accept that and you really embrace it, you know, I think the companies that have the individuals who have uh, have have prospered as a result. Uh, but again, that's right. you know, you, you you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Um, yeah. If you're if you're not an honest and and trustworthy partner, um, that'll you know, we you know, right. in the journalism, we will we will out you, we will find you. 
develop it as a craft, and the craftsman and the craftswoman does not skip steps. And so it does mean accepting that, okay, for a few couple of years, two, three years, I may be working in a really uh, low-paying situation. Where, But as long as it's a place where you get to sort of ply your trade, you're going to get better. You're going to see exponential growth over those years to the point where the people who are not truly committed to doing this long-term and or maybe just decide, and, and I, I respect that, they're not suited to it for whatever reason, the ones who remain, if two years out, three years out, you, you'll see they have the growth curve just jumps. And, and I've seen it now. I've been teaching at BU for about 16 years. We have so, many, so much data that, that proves this. The tough couple of years, you get through it and you learn and you're on your way. When I started uh, my first job, it's wait, say, so right. My first job in journalism was 1982. And you work, you work your ass off yep. five hours a week. And I remember taking home $101.50 a week. Uh, I, I, I wish I had that job. Are you kidding? I'm, you're making me jealous. You're, you're bragging? <laughs> so uh, it, was, uh, it was a poverty plan for a while. But you say there is a moment when it all starts to come together. And uh, I miss journalism to this day. It's such a great profession. I appreciate that. Mitch, thanks very much for being on the crock. Oh, and guys, it was a pleasure. Uh, big fan. All right, Mitch, so, thanks for being with us. I'll see you around the halls. Yeah, we'll see you. Yeah, take care. All, All right. right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.